the delight and the joy that we each can feel this morning is certainly a great thing to appreciate the handiwork and the blessing of God on our behalf through this past week and the opportunity that's ours to begin and to proceed throughout this other this new week with the blessing of God. This first day of the week, the Lord's Day, that day specifically called as that in Revelation 1, is certainly a special day with the opportunity that we enjoy to offer praise and adoration and worship to the God of heaven. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him, to quote verse 7 of Psalm 89. This morning, as you might have already noted in the bulletin, a thing or two that may look a little bit new, we have begun or intend to make consideration of a Bible question of the week. And so to test your knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, you can take a look at that question and strive to find the answer through this week. And next Lord's Day or in the bulletin, the answer will be provided. So see if you can find the answer each week to the question that's presented and perhaps pose it to others and see if even others can also be benefited by consideration and a study of the Holy and Divine Word of God. As you might have noted also in that same bulletin, the title of the lesson today is The Church Taters, spelled T-A-T-O-R-S. And over the next few moments, I would invite your consideration with me to look at a few kinds of church taters. And as we discuss them, to seek to apply some very valiant and very needful lessons to each one of our lives individually. And if change is in order, if new perspective and new attitude is the order of the day, may we with courage and with bravery set the task before us to make those changes. Some of these taters will also be very pleasant kinds of taters, and perhaps you and I will fall into those categories and find ourselves being edified by also the Word of God. By way of introduction, though, I think it fair to say some comments along the order of this. There is no question or doubt that the Bible makes a strong statement that each person is very valuable in the eyes of God. Each and every one sitting and listening to me this morning and any other person on the beautiful globe of God is in fact made in the image and likeness of God, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And as such, there is great possibility and potential in every individual's life. Tasks and works and opportunities and activities and capabilities that perhaps that person can do better than anyone, at least in their locality. It's an amazing thing to consider the instrumentality of God through each individual so long as that person will allow himself to be molded and shaped and used by the God of heaven. But just as certainly as one can speak about that attribute of the human family, we ought not forget, though, that those attributes also are eternally significant because we each will stand before the august presence of the God of heaven and give an answer for the way we've used those talents, the way we've employed those capabilities in or not in his service. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 continues to say, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Isn't it interesting in that light to appreciate the myriad of different kinds of people? There are those who are lovely and sweet and kind. They're a joy to be around and pleasant to work with. They're individuals who genuinely strive to be the kind of person that God would have them be. 
On the other hand, there are those that are difficult to work with. Their personality is abrasive. They're hard to, in fact, deal with on a regular basis. They just have an abrasive kind of personality. I'd invite you to consider with me today the church taters and strive to appreciate where amongst that listing you and I might have tendency to be. And again, if change would be in order, that we might with earnestness strive to do that quickly. The first tater is Mr. Dictator. That kind of person in the church is that one who feels that he or she must be the approver of and the instigator of almost any program, any project, and any work. Nothing can be accomplished without dictator's approval. Nothing can be proceeded without dictator's say-so. Dictator, in essence, is that person who strives to exert himself or herself in ways and in places where it is not only inappropriate, but in fact it is wrong. Dictator is that kind of person who, of course, does not push forward the work of the church. For individuals are afraid of doing anything to upset, bother, or in any way seem to go around the so-called hierarchy of dictator, and so the work is stymied because of him or her. Such a person is not a nobility to the cause of the God of heaven. In fact, it's somewhat interesting to appreciate that many problems often result from dictator. Those problems are not only the stymieing of the work, but again, if the particular work or program is not his idea, he won't support it. For in fact, it is not that which pleases him to have the preeminence. It seems to me it might be fair to say that the Greek translation of dictator might be diatrophies. For in 3 John verse 9, do we not read about one whom John said loved to have the preeminence among us? And in the next verse he said, I'll deal with dictator when I come. In essence, I'll deal with diatrophies. The point is that this man was hindering, harming, and inhibiting the work there where John wrote. And John said such things ought not be. If there is thus an element of dictator within you and me, may we with earnestness strive to move it aside, replace it with far more noble activities and ideas. One of the interesting things, even elders ought not be those of dictators type of person. For in 1 Peter 5 verses 1 through 4, we learn that they aren't to lord it over God's heritage. That is, with humble servants leading the flock in the proper way not dictators as you and I have discussed it this morning. But what about a second kind of tater that sometimes is present in the church and can also be a problematic kind of individual? There's rotator. Now, rotator is a very different kind of individual. For this person is noted for inconsistency, noted for being a person who, like a swinging door, here one time and gone the next. He or she may be present for a service and may not see them for a week or two or three. You can't count on them. They're unreliable. Rotator, you see, if it were left up to him or her, the church will not grow, period. For even they are not interested in being faithfully regular in their support of it, either in terms of contribution, in terms of attendance, in terms of any other activity related to the work of the church. You see, Rotator much prefers to be here one Sunday and there the next so that he or she is never accountable really to anybody. That church doesn't know where he's at. This one doesn't know where he's at. 
rotator, you see, is not primarily interested in spiritual growth for himself or herself. Always on the move, rotating here to there. That simply stands directly opposed, doesn't it, to texts such as Revelation 2.10, Be thou faithful until death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That interesting character associated with rotator also stands opposed, doesn't it, to that marvelous refrain of Paul in 2 Timothy 4. He said, I fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them also that love is appearing. Paul noted the words course and fight. Rotator isn't present often enough to fight. Rotator, you see, is far too inconsistent for that. We can perhaps see in these passages, as well as in Hebrews 10.25, in which even rotators should be reprimanded to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You see, we ought to then quickly try to remove any aspects of rotator from our life and again replace that with far greater and far more useful things for the service of the Master. But in addition to rotator and dictator, there is yet other taters that should in fact come before us this morning. Would you consider with me agitator? Agitator is very different from the previous two. In fact, it's to be noted, agitator seems to thrive on stirring up trouble. Peace and harmony are not satisfactory to this person. He seems to find nothing greater and nothing more pleasurable than to see brethren in disaccord, brethren in disarray, individuals who are at one another's throat. Unity is simply not standable to this person. He enjoys playing the devil's advocate. That, in fact, is the type of person that agitator is. And in a congregation of people, agitator will do just as the name suggests. He or she will agitate stirring things up in ways that promote disunity and disharmony. And in that particular way and manner, there will never be any significant church unity where agitator abounds. It's fair to say in regard to agitator that he relies on many things to accomplish this, not the least of which is backbiting and gossip, talking about people behind their back with regard to rumors that in more, more instances than not likely are not true. As we noted in recent studies, even Wednesday night in Paul's epistle to the Romans, agitator is in fact condemned directly by that word debate in Romans 1.29. It's a fascinating thing to note how often the writer of Proverbs speaks about the sinfulness of gossip and tale-bearing and how that, that directly produces strife. Far in opposition to this, we're admonished to be those involved in brotherly love, those who don't merely seek to agitate just for the sake of agitation. Now, when there are doctrinal matters at stake, certainly we take a stand and we defend the truth. But when it's matters of expediency and matters of opinion, we do not seek to agitate. We seek rather to hold up one another's hand and edify, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, and not agitate. Sad to see a church where there are too many agitators. Those who in fact hamper and hinder the work because all that really is present is infighting and not the external work of the Lord to draw others to a congregation of loving individuals marching toward heaven, desirous of a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father. 
isn't it fair to say that few in the world would desire to be a part of a church where there are very many agitators? For you see, they are not drawn to anything like that. But in addition to agitator, might we consider Mr. Irritator? For this too is a person for which the church ought not be terribly proud. Consider a few ideas about Irritator. We understand that irritator is this kind of person who is opposed to every kind of new work or new idea. This kind of person, you see, is one who relies and rests on only what has been done. Perhaps this person's favorite expression, that's not the way we used to do it. That's not the way we have done it. And thus, this person stands opposed to every new concept every new, perhaps, program of work that could be a great good for the cause of Christ. Isn't it interesting that Mr. Irritator is a person who, in fact, helps the church to ever be destined to be stagnant. There won't be much innovation at all in terms of trying to enact programs that respond to a new society. We are not in any way encouraging a change of the gospel. We know, though, that because of new technologies, there's new ways that things that are scriptural can be accomplished. Irritator has little use for such things. Only what once was in Irritator's mind is what needs to be. That kind of closed-mindedness is, in fact, the absolute nature of this person known as Irritator. Notice some passages that might help us appreciate that that's not a good way to be. For instance, in Acts chapter 13, where have we read before about any kind of missionary journeys and yet the church in Antioch lifted up the hands of Paul and Barnabas and gave them blessing to go and preach the gospel at Cyprus and in Asia Minor and even in many other places. That was the first of three missionary journeys that Paul would take and Antioch supported all of them. There was a church open and ready to take the gospel by a way that they hadn't seen before. Were they open to it? Surely they were. Did they endorse it? Absolutely. Did they give it their wholehearted support? They did indeed. In Acts chapter 6, when there was a problem that arose in the church, a new way was devised to handle it. Were the apostles open to it? They even suggested it. May we today see that so long as a program does not oppose the concept of the Scripture and its truth, that, that might be a new opportunity to reach the lost with the gospel. Irritator doesn't see it that way, but may we in wisdom help to set aside the tendency of irritator and look toward the accomplishment of God's word with all the capabilities that God has made available to us. Considering these four to this point, there is yet another set of taters. Let's look also and continue our journey. There's also hesitator. As the name suggests, Hesitator is one who no doubt has marvelous consideration for good ideas, marvelous intents, and good works. In fact, the intent is so strong that perhaps even he or she will enlist themselves for that work. There is a problem, though. They never follow through on the intent. It never gets anywhere past just an intent, and they hesitate with regard to the accomplishment of it. In fact, with regard to hesitator, this person's concept and this person's advice is always, let's study, let's carefully prepare and analyze before we proceed with any work. That, by the way, is good advice. 
Jesus taught that, didn't he, in Luke 16? In fact, on that occasion, we're even reminded of how important it is to consider our resources and to allot them rightly. Preparation is good, but there must be a follow-through. One must stop hesitating at some point and complete the work. Once we've carefully studied a plan and a program and have discerned that it's proper, it's according to the Scripture, and it's worthy of our financial or otherwise attention, may we no longer hesitate, but may we proceed to complete and to accomplish that good work. On many occasions, the Bible discusses about hesitator. In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, we're reminded there of the need to let us work the works of him. Thus, notice the accomplishment to stop hesitating. Later on, we notice in 1 John 4.18, not to be those overwhelmed by fear, for love casts out fear. We ought not be fearful of new projects and works when in the light of Scripture they're endorsed, and by careful study and analysis we've deemed them good. Didn't Paul tell Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear? 2 Timothy 1.7 in light of the fact God has not given us that, we might also appreciate Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Can God accomplish good works for the gospel through us? Absolutely. Should we be thus ready to no longer hesitate and accomplish them? Surely we should. And hence we should strive to remove hesitator from our being and our nature of character. As you can also see, though, we ought to consider spectator. This is the sixth of our taters, and as we look at spectator, isn't it amazing that, again, as the name suggests, spectator is a dramatic person who wholeheartedly gives verbal accord to programs and ideas. But spectator's desire is to stand and watch. Spectator has no interest in involving himself or herself in the actual accomplishment whether it be a work day at the church, whether it be as a man being asked to lead in some aspect of worship, I'll prefer to watch. Get somebody else. For the ladies, when they perhaps are asked for certain works, they too, if they're of the nature of spectator, have no desire to participate, only to watch, only to observe. It stands to reason the work of the church will never get done by spectator. Spectator only wants to watch, only wants to observe, stand at a distance, if you will, and allow others to actually do the work. We might notice in the scriptures that there is a stern warning in regard to spectator. Can we not remember, in fact, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? The five-talent man, the two-talent man, both were blessed and commended because they put to task the talents that they were given. The one-talent man did not. He hid it, intending simply to return to the master the one thing he had been given, and the master was displeased. In fact, directly telling him, you ought to have put my money to the exchangers and to return to me more than what I gave to you. Spectator, you see, it does not stand to prove before God. The church is not a spectator business. We are each voluntary servants in the cause of the Master, and we are expressly told, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. May we thus, as before, strive to set aside the issues of spectator that may be within us 
and in fact be ready to grab onto the work and to perform the good works that we can do for the cause of the church. Whether it be any of these six that we've discussed so far, might we notice that there is yet more to be considered in terms of the taters that might be found in the church. Let's turn our attention for a moment to imitator. We notice in regard to imitator that there is one sense in which imitation can be a good thing, but in imitator's case it is not. Perhaps we have each been able to see that imitator is a kind of person easy to get along with. He or she wants to please everybody. They are not the person to rebuke or rebut in any sense someone else. In their easiness to get along with, they even are willing to imitate that which ought not be imitated. Another person or another church has a program designed to bring in great crowds and to play to the audience, and imitators ready to adopt the same thing. Imitators' idea is to please men, wanting to simply do that which makes others feel better about themselves in the sense of entertainment or in the sense of making them feel good. Imitators' primary thrust thus is not imitation in a good way. Didn't Paul say in Galatians 1 verse 10, If I seek to please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. That's strong language, isn't it? We're reminded just in the opposite scene of that. Paul did, on the other hand, say, Be ye imitators of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Thus, imitation of Christ is a good thing. Imitation of truth is a good thing. But imitation of others just to please men, imitation of other programs, projects, and works just to make men feel pleased, that's not wholesome and it isn't good. We ought not seek to be that kind of tater at all. Imitation in that way perhaps reminds us of the strength to be found in texts such as Luke 16, 15, where there the Savior expressly said that that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. That point ought never to be forgotten. For the world, as we've often stated, in his following of Satan himself, is the enemy of God, James 4 verse 4. An imitator doesn't appreciate that point. Only wishing to imitate whatever can make a crowd or make others feel. Perhaps less guilty than what the scriptures would have them feel. Perhaps yet another tater. How about commentator? We've each known about commentator more than once, and maybe on the work site or other places we again have appreciated the work of commentator. But when I note the work of commentator, note what that work is. Commentator is this person who is so quick to express his or her viewpoint, and almost always it's negative. Commentator seems to have very little positive to say about a person, about the work, or anything related. Song lead's not good, preaching's awful, the building's too hot or too cold, comments abound, and they're always negative. Commentator doesn't seem to know how to build anybody up, to express a note of appreciation or concern or care for the attributes of what others are able to bring about. Commentator's viewpoint of negativity, in fact, can often be hurtful. To say something to someone, and though commentator may not mean it that way, 
since they only know how to speak negatively, they hurt someone else, perhaps cause them to feel hardly in some way, and in that sense, they're able to harm greatly the work of the church. Commentators' comments of negativity do not encourage a loving church family at all. The comments of negativity, far too often embedded with criticism and a first cousin, if you please, to spectator, often lead this person not to be a participator in any good way. But they do, in fact, love to boss. And they love to, in fact, help out old brother dictator. The comments that are often made thus are not wholesome. I've listed some passages I would wish us to briefly consider. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, what did Peter there say? He said, as you've cleansed your souls in the, purif in the purification of your souls in obedience to the truth, see that you love one another fervently. It would be hard to develop the kind of love, fervent love of which Peter spoke with very many commentators in the group. We can perhaps see in light of commentator that we also should seek to minimize commentators' presence in our lives and thus in the life of the church so that things could be much more loving and much more useful for the work of the Savior. In regard to commentator, though, we have only a few more taters to consider. Might we look briefly at lamentator? We've each known about the word lament, the verb lament, and the word lamentation. We know that lamentator is this person who lives in the past. That's not the way it once was. Oh, how great the church was in the good old days. Commentator, rather, lamentator doesn't see much at all good about the present of the church. It was far better in the past, and it'll never be that good again. Well, certainly we can appreciate that culture does change, and many things in terms of specifics may change. But friend, as long as the truth is approached, as long as the truth is defended, and as long as the truth is that which is sought after, there can be good. The church can again see bright days. We can understand the greatness of not allowing lamentator to overwhelm us and to not allow lamentator's comments to forever doom us to live in the past. Paul was not a person who lived in the past. He said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward to the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Friend, what was in the past is the past. We can't alter it. We can't change it. We can't modify it. We can learn lessons from it and use them to help us march our way into the future more nobly for the cause of Christ. That text in Philippians 3 verses 13 and 14 helps us see that lamentator also is not encouraged in the Bible. I would call to your attention that church in Philadelphia. In Revelation chapter 3, here was a church complimented by Jesus. He said, you have been strong. You have, though your numbers aren't great, you have in fact stood for the faith. But the Lord didn't stop there. He said, I have set an open door before you. There's more to be done, Philadelphia. You can't just rest on faithfulness in the past. You must move forward, move onward, move upward for the cause of truthfulness. That's true of Pippin too. Though we've noted two Sundays ago some good things about 2008, we need to understand there's work to be done in 2009. We can't just rest on the success of the past and expect God to be happy. We need to move forward. 
And so it is that lamentator, this person does not have a wholesome attitude to the extent that should be present. Just as surely as we recognize the good things of the past, Proverbs 22, 28, we still look forward to new work in the future. With regard to lamentator, we have looked thus at nine taters so far, and all of them have been negative, quite frankly. None of them are endorsed wholeheartedly by the Bible, but they're encouraged to change and to repent. There are two last taters that we will consider, and then the lesson will be yours this morning. The tenth tater is facilitator. This tater is a good one. Facilitator is a person who recognizes the nature of loveliness and the power of God's work, is quick to assess the resources available, and seeks to accomplish it. This person facilitates the cause and the work of God. In that sense, it could well be said a facilitator that if a task is given to him or her, it's as good as done. They don't hesitate about it. They do the necessary matters related to its preparation, and then they see that it's done. They facilitate the work of God. Oh, how God needs many facilitators. Those who are happy to appreciate the work of God and are happy to be involved in doing it, happy to see the excitement that comes from completing it, and happy to see the relationship that it brings about for others in light of the Scriptures. How often does the Bible encourage facilitation? Is it not said of Timothy himself by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.12, Be thou an example of the believers. That means in his life they were to see all the things necessary to the facilitation of good. That be in regard to conversation, purity, speech, life, all of it was to be present in Timothy's life, and all of it should be present in ours. Facilitation. Notice another passage, if you would, in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. On that occasion, the edification of the body involves many specific offices and persons who are listed. And as they are listed, Paul said, the purpose is for the ministering to the saints, for the edification of the body, that all may grow up into him to be one spiritual body in Christ. That sounds like facilitation, doesn't it? With regard to facilitator, then, may we seek to diminish or to reduce the others and increase this one to be more like facilitator. And then lastly, our eleventh and final tater of the morning, sweet tater. Perhaps many of us enjoy a good bowl of sweet taters, but this kind of sweet tater is this. A person endorsed in the Scriptures as caring and compassionate. A person who genuinely appreciates the truth of the Bible, the loveliness of the church, the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. A person who wants more than anything else to go to heaven and to take as many with him or her as possible. A sweet tater indeed. The church also needs many sweet taters. Those who are excited to influence others in ways that are good. These sweet taters, you see, are those spoken of seemingly on every page of the New Testament. Those who in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those mentioned in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5, Who first have given themselves to the Lord, and that prompts everything that follows. Their giving, their daily life in Christ, their service to the church. 
these two last taters, sweet taters and facilitators, are noble individuals indeed. Kinds of taters that you and I should seek more to be like and less to be like those first nine that we listed. The question, I suppose, then comes to you and me today. Of these various 11 kinds of taters that we've looked at, how many of them are present in my life? Is too much of the negative ones and not enough of the positive ones? If so, change needs to be made. Perhaps repentance is in order publicly, but at least a personal, private change with determination and dedication should be made, and far more facilitator and far more sweet tater needs to be much like you and me. Today, as we look and consider each one of these, in summary, we might well summarize all of it where I've listed all these 11 taters yet again. Everything from the first one, which was dictator, all the way to the last one, which is sweet tater. If you find today a need in your life to make a change, please, with determination and encouragement, let each of us strive to do that, ever striving to be more like sweet tater, more like facilitator, and less like the first nine that we listed. If you need to make that change today in a way that's public, that might perhaps be amongst these categories. Maybe you have never even begun to walk with the Savior. To this point, you can't rightly even be listed as any of these, for they, at least as I presented it, have all been already a part of the church in some way. And to this point, you are not. You truly are lost at this point. You have no hope of heaven, Ephesians 2 verse 12. You are without all the promises that God has vouchsafed in the Scriptures. Today, though, we could remedy that in a very few minutes. You see, Jesus said you must believe Him to be the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His name as the Son of God, and you must be baptized. If you believe, and if you have reached the point of being excited about repentance to turn aside from that old way of life, perhaps that was far too many of these nine bad taters, then all that needs to be done next is a confession. I'd be happy to help you with that. And then someone could assist you in being baptized. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful to it, maybe you've been like rotator. Maybe you've been much more like spectator. Perhaps lamentator, commentator, dictator, agitator, irritator, imitator. Then it's time to make a change so that your brethren know about your repentance in life. If those things are public, we would pray for on your behalf this morning in light of your repentance and in light of your confession of those things, and we could make things right between you and God. If we could help you do either of those things today, we'd be more than excited to assist you. We would only urge you to let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.